that's what we've been doing this quarter is exploring what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus, an ongoing daily journey with him through our Steps to Christ series. And at this point, hopefully it's been abundantly clear that God loves us and that we need him. He's our only hope of salvation, that when we come to him in true repentance, with confession, with sincerity of heart, that he receives us and he makes us into his own son's image. And so we want to Remain faithful to God, and now as we come to the close, or towards the close of this series, assuming that everyone has at some point given their lives to Christ, is walking faithfully with Him, has that active, dynamic prayer life where we open our heart as to a friend, that you might ask the question, and now what? Well, you have your daily devotions, you continue to study the Word of God, you continue to grow in the grace of Christ, you continue to have this active prayer life, but even with that, Satan still has some very pointed temptations for those who are trying to remain faithful to God. And one of those is doubt in God's Word. Now, we'll cover this in just a moment, but before we study God's Word, we want to begin with an attitude of prayer. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again so much, particularly for this Sabbath day and now at this part of the service this morning. As we open the Word of God, we want to do so humbly, sincerely, and with the leading of the Holy Spirit. So we claim your promise that you've given. We can know the truth, and the truth will set us free. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There could perhaps be no greater way for Satan to annoy, frustrate, and potentially discourage Christians more than to bring into our religious experience, which is based on the truths of God's word, doubts about that very word. Doubts about God, doubts about his love for us, doubts about the things that the Bible claims, doubt in the middle of a good, otherwise good walk. Satan still wants to interject skepticism and discouragement. And of all the denominations in the world, none builds their faith more directly on the Bible and a clear thus saith the Lord than does the Seventh-day Adventist people. We recognize and treasure our identity as God's remnant people who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. But what do we do? When something in God's word doesn't seem to make sense to us. What do we do when part of God's word seems to contradict another? What happens if it looks like at the surface reading that something might be beyond our understanding or doesn't just doesn't add up, doesn't make sense? Satan is waiting as you take your daily walk with Christ, as you have that dynamic prayer life, as you study the word of God to introduce into your mind questions about the character of God and the content of his word. Wait a minute, why? Well, I don't get that. How does that match up with... But doesn't it say over... And he's looking for any opportunity to wrest you away from that firm grip of faith that you have in God. What to do with doubt. So today I just want to simply go through some very basic uh, uh, suggestions, very basic principles, practices that you can do to think, what do I do when I come to something in God's Word it seems beyond my understanding or just doesn't seem to make sense at all. What do I do with doubt? And the first step is this. First of all, when you discover difficulties or mysteries in the Bible you can't decipher or fully grasp, know that God fully expected you not to get everything in his word. Okay? He says so himself throughout the word of God, Old Testament and New. We're going to look at several of these passages. For instance, let's go to the book of Job. Job chapter 11. We find this written in the scripture itself. Job chapter 11, 
starting with verse 7. Verses 7 through 9, Job chapter 11. If you get to the book of Psalms, you've gone one too far. Go back to the left, one book. Job 11, starting with verse 7. Notice what we read here in the scriptures. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. When we come to the word of God, and we try to understand the author of this scripture, we try to understand the the God who would give us such a work, we're going into a great, big, huge area that's far beyond our finite understanding. Now, he gives us things we can understand. And have you ever think about how marvelous it is that a God of infinite knowledge and wisdom and, and, and knowing and understanding would write us a book, right? And he expects us to read it, but we should not be surprised when a God who's that wise and that big and that smart has ideas in this book that our mortal minds can't fully get our arms around. Isaiah 55, look what the Lord himself says directly. Isaiah chapter 55 Verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts, declare the Lord, are not your thoughts. Nor are my ways, or your ways, my ways, says the Lord. Now I find that to be very appealing. That God is smarter than me. <laughs> that no matter how hard I try, no matter how much time and you know, how wisdom I can attain, He's still going to be beyond So don't expect to pick up the Word of God like, oh yeah, easy, I got it. No, it's not like that. God himself says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's go to the New Testament. Go to the book of Romans. Look how the Apostle Paul would speak about this very issue. Romans 11. And if there was anyone who could grasp a big idea or a tough concept, wouldn't it be the Apostle Paul? I mean, he he writes about these magnificent, huge themes in these incredibly long sentences. (laughs) Peter even says, Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. He was a scholar. He was a multilingual evangelist. Yet when he comes to the great themes of God's word, he says in uh, Romans 11, verse 33, and it's an exclamation point. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Now, that doesn't mean we can't know anything, but it certainly means we don't know everything. Paul had a grasp on the gospel, but he even looked at it and he says, but if I were to look at the totality of what I could know about God and what God is and what his, how big and broad his plans are and how deep his love is and the mysteries, I can't get it. I mean, think about this time of the year. Why are people thinking about Jesus this time of year? Well, we're celebrating the birth of Christ, the incarnation, where God became man. Now, we blithely just say, oh yeah, God became man. Huh? <laughs> how? I don't know. But does it make it less true? Of course not. It's just a big thing I don't get. I praise the Lord that it's a fact. I praise the Lord that it's true. But he's not depending on me understanding the nuts and bolts of how it operates. 
before I say, yes, I will trust in the Lord in this matter. No. And you start thinking, think of the things that we talk about. And I, uh, when we talk about God, we're talking about such a huge concept. And the things that he promises, raising the dead, we praise the Lord. How's he going to do that? I don't know. How did he make us in the first place? I don't know. How am I even, I don't know. And I realize that there's a certain amount of things that I can grasp in my life, but compared to the infinite wisdom and mind of God, I'm nothing. Paul says, oh, how do we even comprehend it? It's past understanding. But notice it didn't shake his faith, it more firmly established it. I'm standing at the foot of a giant, and I trust his heart. Number one, God realizes that you don't know all that he is. And he wrote in his book, don't expect for us to be peers. It's never going to happen. Okay? It's also good to know that if you come to some perplexity, some difficulty in God's word, that others have been there too. And their stories are recorded in scripture for our admonition. Go back to the book of Job now. If there was anyone who had a tough time understanding the ways and works of God, it would be Job. Now, we know more about Job's story than, well, Job, right? In our version of Job's story, after it's already finished, after hindsight has cleared it up, after it's been written in Scripture, we can see that the story opens with, there's this man named Job, and he's living a good, faithful life, but in the courts of heaven above, there was this great dispute going on. Satan comes into the presence of God and has argument in Christ, and Job becomes exhibit A in their argument. And we see it. We see what's going on outside the frame. But inside the frame, does Job get it? No. What he knows is he had a really bad day. And I mean, bad doesn't even cover it. Possessions gone. His family had turned him and his children are gone. It's just one right after another, another, another. And his friends console him and they do a better job and then some a worse job and He struggles with these big issues. Why is this happening? What should I do? How is this God's plan? And finally, go to Job 38 now. When the Lord comes to Job, and they finally have a conversation, look what the Lord God says to poor Job. Job 38, let's start with verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this? Who darkens counsel by words without knowledge. You've been talking a long time, Job. You and your friends trying to struggle this and addressing me, invoking my name in your arguments. Who do you think you are? Verse 3. Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And look where the Lord goes. Where were you? When I laid the foundations of the earth, tell me if you have understanding. You think you're struggling with big things now? How, do you, how did I make this place? Job very quickly starts realizing I'm way out of my league here. This is way above my pay grade. Right? Who determined its measurements? Verse 5, surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Basically, by the way, how does gravity work? You go down and he starts asking these things. How does the sea know when to stop? 
How does the sun get on its cycle? How do the Pleiades stay together? And Job has to realize, in fact, go over to verse, uh, this goes for a while, go to chapter 40 now, and look at Job's response. Verse 3 of chapter 40. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. (laughs) What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. There's a lesson for us. (laughs) He's like, I was speaking in a whole room. I was just, I don't belong. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. And then God goes back in for round two. And he asks him more questions about the nature of judgment and who has the ultimate authority in the universe and sovereignty and issues of mind-bending. And nowhere in the book of Job. Now, Job does receive things back from the Lord. All that he has lost is restored to him. It's beautiful, but he never gets the answers as to why and how it works and what's in the mind of God. It's in the book of Job where we read Job's statement, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even if I don't get it, the question is not a question of understanding, the question is of faithfulness. You don't have to know the mind of God, but you can always trust the heart of God. It's a powerful lesson. Job's been there. Go to the book of Daniel. Go to the book of Daniel and go to the very last chapter. Job, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 12. Daniel, in his old age, keeps hearing mystery after mystery. And again, just like Job, we know more about Daniel and his prophecies than Daniel knew. We've seen them fulfilled. But Daniel's looking at them from the front end before they've been revealed. He just hears them prophesied and he doesn't understand. Multiple times he'll receive a vision and he says, and he did not understand. I did not understand. I was sick for days. In the very close of the book, Daniel chapter 12, look at verse 8. Although I heard, I did not, what? Understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Just tell me how it all ends. Turn to the last page. Does the butler do it? Just let me know. I'm not going to be there for it anyway. Just, but look what the Lord answers him. And he said, go your way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. By the way, are these words sealed forever? No. At the time of the end, the time in which we're now living, the Lord will give clarity on these things. But for Daniel at your time, it's not for you. You've done a great job, and that job is done. Close the book, you're done. In fact, go down to verse 13. Look how the very last verse of the book of Daniel closes. But you... Go your way to the end, for you shall rest. What does that mean? You're going to die. Your job is done. Close the book. Go your way and die. Now that doesn't seem too nice. But watch how the sentence ends. And you will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. You're going to die not knowing, but I promise I'll wake you up. If the Lord came to you and explained all, or said all kinds of things that your mind couldn't get around, but he just said, you'll never really know, but trust me, 
you can lay down and even die. What a way to go to sleep at night, amen? By the way, that same assurance can be ours every single day, can it not? We're faithful to him, lay down, and if you don't get up, don't worry, I'll get you up later. And you may not understand in between now and then, but do you trust me? By the way, apparently, according to Scripture, it's okay to imagine how God's mysteries will resolve if he doesn't tell you forthright. You can speculate a little bit. Now watch this. Just be careful, but I want you to see this. Go to Genesis chapter 22. One of the most seemingly mysterious, not seemingly mysterious, it was mysterious, one of the almost apparently contradictory statements that God has ever made to any human being is found in Genesis chapter 22. We'll start with verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! And he said, here I am. By the way, do you think that individuals like Daniel and Job and Abraham had a personal active prayer life where they could talk to the Lord like they were opening their heart to a friend? Absolutely. And it's in this context that the Lord says, let's go a little bit deeper. I'm going to test your faith, Abraham. Abraham, where are you? Here I am. Then he said, verse 2, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, in the book of Romans, we're told to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, but that's not what we're talking about here. What kind of offering is it? Burnt. The son that you love, take him on that mountain and kill him. The one that I promised you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed. Before he's even had one child, I want you to go end his life. I don't know the correct theological term for what that must feel like or the cognitive dissonance it must bring in your head. Wait, wait, wait. You said this, but now you're saying this. These two are completely contradictory. What do you do when God's word doesn't make sense? Now, what must have been going through Abraham's mind? Well, the good thing is we don't have to guess. The Bible actually tells us what he was thinking as he went to offer Isaac. Go down to the New Testament book of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter. And there it reveals to us what was in the mind of Abraham or tested him. Now, Abraham is referred to a lot in Hebrews chapter 11, but I want to draw your attention to verse 17. Hebrews 11, verse 17. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. So the same God who says, I'm going to make a great nation through Isaac, now says, take Isaac and end Isaac. I cannot resolve this, Abraham thought, but watch what it tells us what was in his mind now. Verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up 
even from the what? From the dead. From which he also received him in a figurative sense. So at the end of the story, of course, he does rise up figuratively from the dead, but Abraham had his mind going that he was literally going to end the life of Isaac. He wasn't faking it. But he had to get his mind in the proper context in order to go through with this act. And so he supposes, he, he conjectures, he speculates. Well, the same God that brought him into life the first time can bring him back again in order that his two commands will resolve in a way I don't see yet. Surely it must be like this. But he did it anyway. Now, from our perspective, hearing about God, God's ability and promise to raise the dead is not that big of a deal. Of course, it's always a big deal, but we have record of experiences where it's happened. Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, was raised from the dead. He's promised to raise others in his own ministry, in the ministry of the apostles, and the Old Testament there were people raised from the dead. But why was this such a leap of faith for Abraham? Because until that point, no one had ever been raised from the dead. This is a great trivia question, and I know you're all going to answer at the exact same time. Who was the very first person resurrected from the dead? Moses, the congregation said with confidence. (laughs) Moses. When did Moses live compared to Abraham? Because, I mean, we have Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, then the sons of Jacob, and then you have Joseph goes down into Egypt, and you have 400 years, you know, and then you have this, uh, this is massive, we're talking hundreds of years. And then comes along Moses, and then Moses has his whole life and experience, and then he dies and is taken up, and then he's resurrected for the dead for the very first time. Abraham and Moses weren't anywhere near contemporaries. Much less had Abraham seen any example of evidence that God would actually raise the dead, or that he could, or that he ever had. But without ever seeing it happen, he theorizes, he speculates that, okay, Here's this, here's this one way that God is asking. Here's another way that seems to be complete. God can resolve this, and I think it'll probably work like this. But what's amazing is, even with that speculation, that wasn't fact until it ever happened, right? But without understanding how God was going to work, Abraham did it anyway. Even through not, not seeing he stepped forward. This is why faith, we talk about faith and not by sight. Abraham exemplified that. Which again brings me back to this point. We need to concede the fact, accept it as gospel truth, that we will never, and I mean never, fully understand the mind of God. We simply will never be peers with God. And I say this particularly for the Seventh-day Adventists in the room. There is, I believe, a bit of an urban legend going around that, yes, we don't understand now, but when Jesus returns during the millennium for the thousand years, then we'll understand everything. No, we won't. After that thousand years, there's going to be school the next day and the next day and the next day throughout all eternity There will never be a day when we catch up. We're never going to come up on a Wednesday and be, hey, you know what? Lord, I finally attained. You and I are... As Christians, we should never have that expectation. 
Education, page 172, Mrs. White writes, If it were possible for us to attain a full understanding of God and His Word, there would be for us no further discovery of truth, no greater knowledge, no further development. God would cease to be supreme and man would cease to advance. Thank God it is not so. Since God is infinite and in Him are all the treasures of wisdom, we may to all eternity be ever searching, ever learning, yet never exhaust the riches of His wisdom, His goodness, or His power. Praise the Lord. Wouldn't it be awful if you or I were the height of wisdom? What a terrible thought. That what we see around us is the best that it's going to get. No. There is a God who knows more and is leading us on ever further in depth of understanding and growth and grace and Christ-likeness, but we're never going to fully get there. And that's a good thing. These Bible authors realized their weaknesses, and they didn't say, oh, man, I can't understand God. They're saying, praise the Lord, there's someone better than me. So let's cut to the quick, as Christ did. Let's go to John chapter 7. The real reason people don't understand the Bible better than they do. We can talk like friends, yes? Good. (laughs) John chapter 7, we'll start with verse 14. Look at Christ's encounter with the teachers of the law, the the Jewish nation of those days who, who knew the law of God, but they failed to discern Christ as their Savior. This had to be a continual frustration to Christ. Remember, doesn't John open with, he came to his own and his own received him not? Christ's like, I'm here. I'm the fulfillment of the book that I've given you for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they're all studying the book, but they don't recognize Christ. How is it possible that you can have the Word of God for so long and miss Christ? John chapter 7, starting with verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And whatever he taught had to be so good that even those people who didn't like Jesus recognized that he knew what he was talking about. Look at verse 15. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? (laughs) How does he know when we haven't taught him? How can he have such a breadth of understanding and a depth of appreciation of God's word and a knowledge of the scripture? How is it possible? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. He's like, I'm not making stuff up here. It's right here in the word. And then he cuts to the quick as to why they don't have the depth of experience he has. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak with my own authority. Is it possible that some people's lack of understanding Scripture isn't because they can't know, it's because they don't want to know? Because then I'll be responsible for what is clear. I'd rather have things shrouded in mystery than to realize they're just saying what they're saying and goes back to that thing I've said a bunch. Everybody wants to know what the Bible says until they find out what the Bible says. 
As long as it's interesting theory, it's fun trivia, it's neat little factoids and stuff. But when it cuts, what does the Bible say about itself? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to the quick, down to the heart. Christ was able to discern it in his day. You don't actually want to do what the word says. No wonder the word is mysterious to you. Go back just a little bit before that to John chapter 3. Starting with verse 3, Jesus has that midnight encounter with Nicodemus. And he declares just directly his need for complete rebirth. Jesus says in John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, obviously, Christ is not talking about that. But if you want his words to be mysterious, you can make up an excuse. And Christ answers him graciously. Jesus answered most assuredly, verse 5, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth, and baptism is a sign of it. That's what I'm talking about. Not physical birth and labor again. Come on, man. In fact, skip down to verse 9. Even after that explanation, Nicodemus comes back again. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? How is it possible that you have learned and now presume to teach when the most fundamental principles are mysterious to you? Why is it that way? Thus we read in verse 19 of the same chapter, Jesus' explanation. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were what? Evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. I have seen this in people time and again. They prefer to profess confusion so they don't have to confront conviction right? Oh, I can't know what that means. I'm I'm not really sure that it's really time. And you notice the things that people are fine with, big picture ideas, no problem. But when a cutting truth comes, oh, I'm not sure that it's really saying that, or I'm not really sure that applies to me. I I can't really wrap my mind around. Once I get it, then I'll accept it. No. A lot of the issue with our brain is really an issue of our heart. Not wanting to get it, so we keep obfuscating, excusing, and pushing off and putting over there. Uh, 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 Nicodemus, I don't understand. Are you saying you want me to crawl back? It's like, is that? Mm. You know that's not, but you prefer darkness to light. Which brings us to this statement from the chapter that we've been reading this week in Steps of Christ, page 111. It sounds a little bit crazy on the first hand, but when you understand this context, it makes total sense. There is much reading of the Bible 
that is without profit and in many cases a positive injury. Now you would think, no, no matter when you pick up the Bible, it's good for you, right? No. Think about this. Now she's going to explain this now, but I want you to think about it for a second. There is much reading of the Bible that is without profit and in many cases a positive injury. When the word of God is opened without reverence, without prayer, when the thoughts and affections are not fixed upon God or in harmony with his will, the mind is clouded with doubts and in the very study of the Bible, skepticism strengthens. Right? If you're looking for contradictions, if you're looking for mysteries that you can't understand, are you going to find them in the Bible? Sure. And if that's all you're seeking, your Bible study will actually strengthen your skepticism. If that's your goal. That's what happened with the Jews of their time. They poured over the scripture, but had not looked for becoming like Christ, and had looked for the plan of salvation, and looked for their own selfish interests, and didn't recognize Jesus when he showed up. That's why Christ would later say, you err in not knowing the scriptures. She continues explaining. The enemy takes control of the thoughts, and he suggests interpretations that are not correct. Wherever men are not in word and deed seeking to be in harmony with God, then however learned they may be, they are liable to err in their understanding of Scripture, and it is not safe to trust to their explanations. You'll see it these days. People will pontificate and, and bloviate and go on and on about all the things they know about the Bible, but they haven't actually had a converting experience with Christ. They're blind guides, Jesus would say. Watch out. Those who look to the Scriptures to find discrepancies have not spiritual insight. With distorted vision, they will see many causes for doubt and unbelief in things that are really plain and simple. Disguise it as they may, the real cause of doubt and skepticism, in most cases, is the love of sin. I'd prefer to continue doing than to be confronted with the truth of God. The teachings and restrictions of God's word are not welcome to the proud, sin-loving heart, and those who are unwilling to obey its requirements are ready to doubt its authority. In order to arrive at truth, we must have a sincere desire to know the truth and a willingness of heart to obey it. And all who come in this spirit to the study of the Bible will find abundant evidence that it is God's word and they may gain an understanding of its truth that will make them wise unto salvation. So what are we saying here today? As you walk with Christ, as you study his word, as you have that dynamic growing prayer life, all of those things are wonderful, but Satan's not going to give up on you even then. He'll try to interject and weave his way into your experience. As you look at the Bible, he'll try to say, well, that's too mysterious, or that's too tough, or that's too something. Don't let Bible difficulties discourage you or cause you to lose sight of God. Plenty of other people have been right where you are, and believe it or not, will still not ever understand everything, even throughout eternity. However, what we can know, in fact, what we need to know for salvation, has been faithfully recorded and is plainly understood in God's Word. Keep growing in Christ and never embrace confusion as an excuse to evade conviction. Whatever word of God says to you, trust it, follow it, and whatever is unclear, he will continue to reveal and open to you 
throughout time and eternity. But trust him. Always walk by faith. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.